Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the VCM Quick Strike for Monday, November 14th, 2022. Hope you all had a great weekend. I did. Did an overnight church retreat. It's great to be able to recharge physically, mentally, and spiritually. Highly recommend it, and I'm ready to go this week. First one up from the Hacker News. New KMSD bot malware hijacking systems for mining crypto and launch DDoS attacks. Apparently, this malware uh, leverages the secure shell protocol to gain entry into targeted systems with the goal of mining cryptocurrency and carrying out DDoS, DDoS rather, attacks. The malware has been found targeting a variety of companies ranging from gaming to luxury car brands to security firms. Basically, infects systems via an, an SSH connection that uses weak logon creds. Obviously, you want to use better creds or even better use a certificate to log in if you have to log in remotely via SSH or do a jump box or something along those lines. Uh, the KMSD bot comes with the capabilities to perform scanning operations and propagate itself by downloading a list of usernames and password combinations. It's also equipped to control the mining process and update the malware, so it seems to have some propagating intelligence built in. These findings come as vulnerable software is being increasingly used to deploy cryptocurrency miners, jumping from 12% in Q1 this year to 17% Q3. This according to Kaspersky. Kaspersky also notes that the most targeted country in Q3 is, can you guess it? You're probably wrong. I was as well. Ethiopia at 2.38%, which is rather interesting because it is illegal to use and mine cryptocurrencies in Ethiopia. From ITAM Review, U.S. federal cybersecurity requirements raise the importance of ITAM for all. In recent years, the article says, the demands of U.S. federal agencies have driven forward cybersecurity best practices in many areas of ITAM. Now, this comes down to Executive Order 14028, which requires, this was issued last year, May, that software publishers and developers to attest to the fact that they employ secure software development practices as defined by NIST. There's a link in the article, which is noted in the show notes. In order for their software to be deployable by a U.S. federal agency, this only applies to new software and new major versions of existing software deployed since the executive order was issued. Now, ITAM teams have been tracking application life cycle information for many years. This is also a requirement of some standards and regulations, such as PCI DSS, that apps be no longer than one version off the current release, which some people will note as N minus one. A full inventory is required by the end of this year. So if you haven't done it, may need to do it. One final note with regards to this. I would love it if articles and websites would explain either within the article or on the website itself what the acronyms are for. Now, ITAM, I was pretty sure of what it stood for. I'm pretty sure that it stands for IT Asset Management. It could also be IT Access Management. It could be a bunch of other things. It's kind of like ATM. I remember that back in the day, ATM could mean uh, air, air transfer rather air turbine motor, automated teller machine, or asynchronous transfer mode, which was a networking thing, which I think I got that right. So don't assume that everybody understands what the acronyms are, particularly if you're going to a more general audience such as small and mid-sized businesses. It just helps everybody. From InfoSecurity Magazine, mass email extortion campaign claims server hack. 
Security experts have revealed a new extortion campaign threatening to leak sensitive corporate data unless a Bitcoin payment is made. Quote from the message, we will systematically go through a series of steps to totally damage your reputation. First, your databases will be leaked or sold to the highest bidder to be used for any purpose. Next, emails will be sent to all your customers, suppliers, and business partners stating that all of their information has been sold or leaked and your site was at fault for leaking the information and damaging the reputation of all your customers and providers. Lastly, any links that you have indexed in search engines will be de-indexed based on the black hat techniques we used in the past to de-index our targets, not to mention getting your business on every blacklist in the company, rather in the country. Sounds like a lot of stuff, but the weird thing here to me is that they're only asking for $2,500 within 72 hours. It would seem to me that with all of that, that the extortion would ask for more. Perhaps this is a typo. I don't know. That just seems rather low to me. From Washington Technology, the final rule for CMMC for the Defense Industrial Base, otherwise known as DIB, is months away, but the author of its sounding principles sternly says to get to work now. That's the TLDR, Robert Metzger. He is the co-author of Deliver Uncompromised, a report from the nonprofit research firm MITRE that describes many of the principles behind CMMC as the co-chair of cybersecurity practice at a law firm. And he also is still a consultant. So this is from a keynote at Washington Technology CMMC Summit on November 9th. And then after that, there was a conversation between Metzger and the Washington Technology, uh, rather the GovExec 360 President Troy Schneider. Some interesting responses here. Metzger goes on to talk about that the building block for CMMC is 800-171. Well, they say 801-171, but I'm pretty sure that's a typo here. The quote is, it is possible for organizations to assess their risk and determine the customers that are most important and where the continuity of service or protection of their information is the most impactful. But we also have to look beyond 171 because it is just a baseline. Um, Metzger also says that in response to complaints that the CMMC can be too hard, too expensive, and too complex for SMBs that are part of the DIB, and how to strike a balance, that's a difficult question to answer because, quote, we know that adversaries will seek the so-called low-hanging fruit and mount attacks against companies that are less well-defined, but the problem is that for small businesses, 171 can be daunting, intimidating, frustrating, confusing, and expensive. I totally agree with that. But the takeaway here, Metzger has asked, well, the rule isn't due till March. What, when should we think about that we'll see a requirement in contracts? And Metzger very wisely says it doesn't matter. You should be working on it now. I did this a couple episodes ago where I found an article and they had a list of the eight ways or some ways of something. And I hadn't read it beforehand outside of the first one. And I decided that on the podcast, I would read them and have my first uh, reaction to each as this part of the podcast. Maybe this will become a regular feature. I don't know. I like doing it. Kind of surprises me when I'm going through this quote unquote on the air. And this is from CSO Online, eight strange ways that employees can accidentally, and then accidentally is in brackets because maybe, maybe not, expose data. Number one here, eyeglass reflections expose screen data on video conferencing calls. I have seen this. I have actually tried to look at the eyeglass reflections just out of curiosity to see if I could see anything. I don't know how easy it is for that. I guess you could 
expand it and depends upon the quality of your camera. So if you have a high quality camera and you have eyeglasses, you might want to consider that. Number two, LinkedIn career updates trigger new higher SMS phishing attacks. Well, I suppose I think we've talked about that before. I suppose that that's a that could be a problem. But really, with any phishing attack, you should try to understand what they look like, what the vectors are. Always follow the tried and true principle. If it's too good to be true, it isn't true. Number three, social media messaging app pictures reveal sensitive background info. Yeah, we see this a lot. Um, pictures taken somewhere where there's a Wi-Fi password in the background, for example, or even just screens or sometimes papers on the on the desk. Sometimes what I do with the virtual CISO moment, I have to make sure I've got a whiteboard behind me. And if I have anything on the whiteboard, that portion that you can actually see, I just make sure that it's not anything that I don't mind if it's public. So the left side of my board is the more confidential information and the right side. Yeah, if you see it, you see it. It's, it's usually just things that I'm talking about, perhaps for the next episode. So maybe it's not bad for you to read it. Number four, data ingestion script mistypes result in incorrect database use. Well, that's part of integrity, isn't it? CIA. Number five, certificate transparency logs expose rafts of sensitive data. So certificate transparency logs allow users to navigate the web with a higher degree of trust and allow administrators and security professionals to detect secure certificate anomalies and verify trust chains quickly. However, because of the nature of the logs, all the details in the cert are public and stored forever. Okay, I can see that. Number six, in it, six innocent USB hardware becomes a backdoor for attackers. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, that's kind of a standard thing. Just be careful about the hardware that you put in your machine. Some organizations mandate just one specific type of USB drive that you use on corporate devices and to an extension maybe personally owned devices that are managed centrally as far as some aspects. And number seven, discarded office printers offer up Wi-Fi passwords. Well, we've talked about discarding printers before, about making sure that the disks are wiped, even if it's encrypted, but that used to be a big deal where firms would dispose of printers and not think about wiping the disks on the printers. And number eight, emails sent to personal accounts leak corporate customer information. This is a no, 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 no. You should never have in your organization folks using their personal information or rather personal emails for conducting business operations. Never, ever, ever. And finally, I have a blog. This is actually from August 4th, 2020 from Daniel Andrew, and this is on intruder.io. It is, what is an external pen test? This I've included for small and mid-sized businesses in particular, because obviously most of the security folks that are listening to this, they understand what a pen test is. Uh, but for the SMBs that have heard the term, not sure what it is, the blog post starts out with a pretty good definition. A penetration test, commonly known as a pen test, is a security assessment which simulates the malicious activities of real-world attackers to identify security holes in your business's systems or applications. The aim here is of conducting a pen test is to understand what vulnerabilities are in your business systems, how they could be exploited, and what the business impacts would be if an attacker was successful. So in other words, it's preventative. 
so for small and mid-sized businesses, this is a good read as a primer for understanding what pen tests are. And for everybody, I've got a few comments about penetration testing in 30 seconds. I chose the blog post on penetration testing, not because it's something recent. Again, the blog post is from more than two years ago. I think it's extremely relevant. And the reason why I think it's relevant is that, well, to be quite blunt, I've come across several instances in my career, particularly doing the virtual CISO services, where I've encountered a firm, a client, a prospect that they've had penetration tests done in the past that maybe weren't quite what they thought that they were. A lot of what we do when we first onboard a client, for example, is that we want to know the as is. And one of the things we request is to show us your most recent uh, testing, vulnerability assessment, pen testing, social engineering, that sort of thing. And it happens not often, but it happens enough where the penetration test that's provided is nothing more than a vulnerability scan. Probably one of the worst examples of this is came to review a penetration test. The penetration test has a nice cover page saying, this is how we do it. This is the processes we scan. We uh, have a manual process. We try to exploit all the right words and all that. And then the next part of the penetration test was the vulnerability assessment. And the vulnerability assessment showed zero vulnerabilities. This is an external penetration test. And that was presented as the report. Couple of things here. First of all, on initial read, it was clear to me that most likely the vulnerability assessment was not conducted correctly. I won't go into details of the platform, but it was a platform that I'm aware of. And the responses that were returned indicated not that the scan showed no vulnerabilities, but rather that the scanner could not identify that the target was actually up and therefore abandoned the scan. A good example of this, I don't remember if this was the case here, is that if a target is, the discovery is ICMP, ping, and the target does not respond to the ICMP echo request, well, then the scanner figures, well, there's nothing there, no reason to scan that IP address, and then it's done. But the thing that really irks me, that really irks me, is that here is a professional firm that this group contracted for and paid most likely significant amount of funds for, for a penetration test to A, meet compliance, and B, just meet some sort of measure of comfort that their systems didn't have any exploitable vulnerabilities that this professional group provided. And it should have been obvious to anybody within the group that this was not a quality pen test. Whoever was the pen tester, they, there wasn't a quality assurance program to check the report before it went to the client. Now, you as a small and mid-sized business executive, you need to understand what it is that you're purchasing. And I understand that you rely upon managed security service providers because that's what they do. Then that's why this irks me. Now, fortunately, I don't think that this ended up 
with any drastic consequences for the organization. There weren't any known exploits of that during the period of when that pen test was done and when we discovered that it wasn't really a pen test. That's not the point. I've talked about ethics beforehand. That is one example of something that we in the industry need to call out whenever and however. Now for small and mid-sized businesses, again, I would, I would caution you on what you are looking for in a penetration test. Make sure you understand it. Do some research beforehand. Ask questions. Don't, don't just order something and think that, oh, hey, I got a great report. Everything's fine. Because that's probably what happened in this case. Again, fortunately, I don't think that there was any repercussions for it directly, but certainly indirectly. And for the MSSPs that are doing this, if you're not properly doing penetration tests or quality assurance on your reports before they go out to your clients, eventually your reputation is going to suffer for it. And that's it for today. First, I want to apologize if the audio quality of this podcast is a little bit less than normal. I'm having a little bit of problem with my Blue Yeti right now. I don't think it's anything that is major. Probably a reboot of the machine will cure it. But I recorded this using the webcam microphone, and I did a quick test, and it seemed like that it was fine. And But probably just a little bit less in quality than normal. So that's that. Um, Tomorrow, we've got a little bit of a different episode. I have strung together the first two episodes of Advice on Consulting and present that as a teaser for this mini-series that I'm doing on YouTube. The link to that mini-series will be in the show notes tomorrow. It's on the YouTube channel. If you just go to youtube.com backslash at the CISO, you'll get to it. It's very interesting. A lot of folks have asked me about cybersecurity consulting advice on that. And I try to basically give some knowledge and experience in the idea that it might help folks. And then finally on Wednesday, we've got the last of the retreat sessions. That was the information security, cyber um, security conference at Montreal College in September of this year. This is with Lynn Clark. He is the Carolina Cyber Center's SOC director discussing, and he discussed how the SOC benefits both the students and the Carolina Cyber Center program. And you probably just heard that I just had a little ding saying that I have a message, I believe, on LinkedIn. You wouldn't have heard that if it was the Blue Yeti. But anyway, that's enough for today. I hope you all have a great week and stay secure.